The beauty is deceptive. He entices you and brings you in so as to communicate not the beauty of time, but the brokenness of time. You can't master it. It's running away from you. You have no control over the timing of the events in your life. They have not been ordained by you. This is Timeless Truth Today, and I'm your host, Matt Williams. Welcome to part six of Where Can Meaning Be Found? A nine-part series through Solomon's book of Ecclesiastes from Pastor Paul Twiss. Today, Pastor Paul opens a new segment in this series, The Gospel of Time, found in Ecclesiastes chapter three. This chapter opening may be known to more people than any other passage in the Bible. It begins as follows. For everything there is a season, and a time for every matter under heaven. Pastor Paul responds in today's teaching, quote, Man does not get to say when those seasons occur. Everything is ordained, but not by man, end quote. And therein lies the rub. Here's part six of Where Can Meaning Be Found? We look at these well-known verses in Ecclesiastes chapter 3. The word reads, For everything... There is a season and a time for every matter under heaven, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to break down and a time to build up, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together, a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing, a time to seek, a time to lose, a time to keep, a time to cast away, a time to tear and a time to sow, a time to keep silence and a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. What gain has the worker from his toil? I've seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with, He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also, that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. That which is already has been, that which is to be already has been, and God seeks what has been driven away. So reads the word of the Lord. If you had been alive in the 18th century, and if you had had any interest in science, then you would have been aware of the biggest problem of that day, the longitude problem. It was the greatest scientific problem of the day, and it had been for many centuries. The longitude problem, simply stated, was the inability to measure longitude at sea. 
Now, the measurement of latitude was not difficult, the lines, of course, running parallel to the equator. But as a ship approached the poles, the lines of longitude would converge, and then back down towards the equator, they would diverge. And so it was incredibly difficult to accurately plot the longitude of a ship. What would often happen is that the captain would misplace his vessel, and all of a sudden, land would appear, rocks would appear, the ship would crash, and lives would be lost. And so over the years, the longitude problem had caused thousands of men to die, and the crux of the problem was actually one of time. You see, the two things that you needed to know in order to measure longitude at sea was the time in your home port and the time on board the ship. If you could get those two measurements accurately, then you could do a quick calculation and plot your longitude. For many centuries, scientists had sought a solution and they believed the solution to be in the heavens. They sought to map the stars, thinking that that would provide the answer. And it wasn't until a carpenter from the northwest of England provided the solution in a form of a clock that longitude could finally be plotted with any degree of accuracy. He designed a clock that could be taken on board. He labored over the design of it for some 40 years, and that solved the problem. Now, of course, today, the measurement of longitude is not something that we are troubled with. We take it for granted with the development of satellite technology. We live in an age where we can not only plot the position of a, sea,、uh, a ship at sea accurately, we can identify where devices are in a second. In our house, Laura's phone is lost daily. I think the children consider it their responsibility to aid mum and dad in our sanctification. And somehow, in a way that I don't fully understand, an app on my phone. Makes her phone speak and we can find it immediately. But for many centuries, we weren't able to plot ships at sea. The problem of longitude testified to the message of Ecclesiastes 3, which is that man cannot master time. It was testimony to the fact that we do not control the ticking of a clock. Far less do we control the timing of the events in our lives. Rather than being lords over time, we are minions at the mercy of time. Seasons come and seasons go. We have no control over the clock, much less do we have control over the timing of the events that define our lives. We must simply learn to embrace them when they come. We must simply learn to navigate through the waters of life, giving thanks to God for each and every second that we have as a gift given to us, rather than seeking to master time, rather than seeking to master that which has not been given to us. It's a lesson we must learn. It's a lesson that we must keep on learning, not simply because it would teach us something about our time management, though it would, but because our response to the ticking of the clock. Our response to the events that have been ordained for our life, both in content and timing, testifies in some way to the gospel by which we have been saved. It is a gospel issue. We are representatives of Christ, and our response to external realities that Put themselves upon us, external realities over which we have no control, reflects, for good or for bad, upon the Savior 
who we represent, our lives testify to him, and the ticking of the clock, just one small aspect of this equation, is something that we must think about biblically. We need to have a robust theology of time. And this is what Solomon gives us in Ecclesiastes chapter 3. Now, of course, this is part of a bigger argument. This book is the memoirs of a king, the greatest king in all of Israel, a man who was blessed with more wisdom than any before him and any who came after him, a man who had enormous amounts of wealth and resources, and a man, don't forget, who had slowly turned his back on the Lord. It's so important as you read Ecclesiastes that you remember who wrote it. Here is Solomon who, though he had at one point in his life worshipped the Lord and led Israel in worship, had started to turn away from the Lord. He was a man who had lived a secular life and he had sought meaning, satisfaction, joy in just about everything except God. And here we have his memoirs. We've seen in chapter 1 and 2 how he sought for satisfaction and meaning in study, wisdom, pleasure. At the end of chapter 2, he looks at work, and his conclusion is always the same, vanity of vanities. Here in chapter 3, the tone of the book changes somewhat. It would seem that the searches are over. He's no longer giving us an account of his searches. He is more pondering reflecting upon the vanity of life. Though the tone has changed, we have no reason to think that Solomon's heart has changed. It is reasonable to assume that this is still the same man living that same secular life without a proper acknowledgement of God, refusing to live under the authority of his creator and simply trying to do things his own way. And so now as Solomon considers the issue of time, it seems like we have a man who is frustrated at the clock. He observes how time robs a man of any supposed power, any supposed authority. All that he can do is take what comes to him and he must embrace it. Solomon has a lesson to learn. The passage can be divided into two halves. The first half is verses one through eight and it is a poem. The second half is verses 9 through 15, and it is the explanation of the poem. You can think of this passage like a clock, like a grandfather clock. Picture a tall grandfather clock. In 1 through 8, we observe the front of it, and we see the pendulum swinging back and forth. That is the poem, observation. In 9 through 15, we walk around the back of the clock, we open up the door, and we peer inside. We see the inner workings of the clock, and we get the explanation as to the poem. So in verses 1 through 8, we observe time's futility, and in 9 through 15, we understand futility's working. Beginning then with the poem, Observing Time's Futility, in verse 1, Solomon says, For everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven. Now notice in that verse the all-encompassing nature of the statement. Just as in previous chapters, Solomon did not do things by halves and his searches were wholehearted, full-on, so he begins the poem with an all-encompassing statement. 
He says, for everything, everything, there is a season. For every single matter under heaven, there is a time. He's stressing to us that the futility of time stretches to every single aspect of our existence. Moreover, notice the absence of any reference to man. For everything there is a season, and a time for every matter under heaven, and man has got nothing to do with it. Man does not get to say when those seasons occur. He is not consulted. Everything is ordained, but not by man. And that is his opening thesis statement. And then he plays out this premise in this wonderful poem. Now, as we move into the poem, it's very important that you understand what we have here is descriptive and not prescriptive. This is observational, it's not instructional. It's interesting to see how many Christians seem to think that what we have here in this poem is some imperative, some kind of to-do list for life that will get you into a lot of trouble, especially when you come to verse 3. Solomon is simply observing life. How does he make his observation? He makes his observation in the form of 14 pairs of opposites, much like the swinging of a pendulum on a grandfather clock. He moves from one extreme to the other. He goes from birth, verse 2, all the way over to death, the two extremities of life. He goes from planting to plucking up that which is planted. He goes from an act of intentionally bringing harm, that is killing, to intentionally prolonging life, that is healing. He goes from weeping to laughing, from mourning to dancing, and so on and so on. And what we should understand is that as we move from one extreme to the other, everything in between is implied. Solomon is saying, birth is ordained, there is a time for birth, there is a time for death, and so by implication is there a time for everything that lies between those two extremities. The whole of life has been ordained, but not by man. We have no control over the timing of these seasons. He makes the same point in a second way. Think about the 14 pairs that he lists and see how he intentionally picks things that move us through the different spheres of life. He starts with physical life, being born and dying, planting and plucking up. He moves to the sphere of warfare, a time to kill, a time to heal, a time to break down, that is to break down the barriers of a city in warfare, a time to build them up again. He goes to emotions, private emotions of weeping and laughing, and then more public emotions of mourning and dancing. He moves to an agricultural image, as he says, casting away stones, that is to throw stones upon a field to stop the crops growing and then gathering up stones to allow the crops to begin their growth. He goes to the uh, realm of relationships, a time to embrace and to refrain from embracing. He moves to the sphere of material possessions, to seek, to lose, to keep, to cast away. He goes to the area of mourning, to tear, that is in the ancient Near Eastern world, to tear your garments in mourning. And then when mourning comes to an end, you sew them back up again. You keep silent when you're mourning, and then there will come a time when you speak again. And then he concludes 
with human affections, again, loving and hating and warfare, a time for war and a time for peace. And so, in a subtle way, Solomon shows us again the truth that in every sphere of human existence, on the whole spectrum of life, the contours are already defined, the timing has been ordained, but it is not decided by us. Which is to say, there is a time when you will mourn, but you don't get to decide it. There is a time when you will cry, and you don't get to pick when that is. There will be times in your life of immense joy, and you don't get to decide when that is. There will be times of intense sorrow, and you are not in control. And then for everybody, death will come. Death will come and knock on the door, and he will not consult your schedule. And then just in case you have not got the point, Solomon says it a third way. He's already shown us the extremes and everything in between. He's moved between all these different spheres. And now, think about the form of the poem itself. I described it as a clock, looking at the swinging of a pendulum, because that's exactly the literary effect that Solomon gives us. A time for this and a time for that. Tick, tock, tick, tock. Can you see the brilliance of this man, the genius of this man, as he crafts this poem, he draws us in with its beauty so as to communicate the same point again. As you read it, he's telling you that time is slipping away. As you read this poem, time is slipping away like sand through your fingers, and there is nothing that you can do to get it back. You have no control over it. It is escaping your grasp. And think about the irony of this. This portion is perhaps the most well-known portion in the book of Ecclesiastes. I would say it's one of the most well-known portions of Scripture in the Old Testament. I've heard this portion quoted in movies and in TV shows. You speak to the man on the street who knows nothing about the church or the Bible, and he may well know this passage. Why is it so well known? Because of its beauty. And it is so ironic because Solomon is drawing you in with the beauty of the poem so as to communicate not something of beauty, but something that is broken. The beauty is deceptive. He entices you and brings you in so as to communicate not the beauty of time, but the brokenness of time. You can't master it. It's running away from you. You have no control over the timing of the events in your life. They have not been ordained by you. And therefore, it is even more ironic that we speak so often about keeping time. I think there are few phrases that are so ridiculous in all of the English language as keeping time. There is no sense in which we keep time. If every clock and every watch on planet Earth stopped this second, time would just keep marching on. It doesn't wait for us. It doesn't care for us. It shows us no mercy. And so we can't speak of keeping time. We don't keep it. The very best we can do is track it. The very best we can do is to try and keep a record of it. And we can't even do that. For thousands of years, men lost their lives at sea because we couldn't keep time. We couldn't track time. The most accurate clock 
in all of the world is an atomic clock. It costs millions of dollars. It loses time in the range of one times 10 to the minus nine seconds per day, which means it will lose about a second over the course of 100 million years. And the scientists and the engineers say, look at our precision and marvel at our accuracy. And Solomon says, you are still losing time. The testimony of mankind's relationship with the clock is that we do not keep time. We do not track time. We are always beaten by the clock. There are never enough hours in the day. We are ruled by the tyranny of the urgent. And so we have schedules of frustration and not schedules of success. And the most immediate example of this is the fact that even this evening, understandably, for many of you, your thoughts will turn to what it is you have to achieve this evening before you go to bed. Your thoughts, understandably, will go to tomorrow and what it is you need to get done in the day. And there is always this sense of urgency. Why? Because there are never enough hours in the day. I remember when we came here in 2012, I remember it like it was yesterday. I remember that plane journey, the very first time we felt the heat of LA. I remember the first Sunday we came to Grace. I remember exactly where I sat. I remember the people I sat with and the sermon I listened to. I remember it like it was yesterday. And somehow, five years have vanished. I remember when our first baby was born. I remember like yesterday, the drive to the hospital that day. I remember the song playing on the radio, the shirt I was wearing. I'll never forget the time when the doctor first handed me our baby girl. And in a flash, eight years have vanished. And you can all relate. You all have experiences where time has just slipped away, disappeared in an instant. Wherever we look and whatever it is we consider, the testimony of life is that the clock wins again. And so it is for good reason that Solomon says in verse 9, what gain has the worker from his toil? Now Solomon, again, is not asking questions of immediate temporal gratification. He's not asking the question about his paycheck at the end of the month. As with the rest of this book, Solomon is asking eternally significant questions. He's saying, if it is true that time is always slipping away, we cannot master the clock, then what's the point? Why bother? You can't hold on to the time that you have. Why bother, says a frustrated Solomon. And here again is where Ecclesiastes is so helpful at confronting us with the reality of life. You're listening to Timeless Truth Today. Solomon, the richest and wisest king to ever reign in Jerusalem, has written about time in chapter three of Ecclesiastes. His poem in verses two to eight is precedent. Solomon sees something that neither he nor mankind can conquer, the relentless march of time. Says Pastor Paul, he entices you and draws you in so as to communicate not the beauty of time, but the brokenness of time. Could this be God's reminder that one day time will run out for us all? If you'd like to learn more about the world as God sees it, come to our website, 
TimelessTruthToday.org. Select Broadcasts on the homepage, and there you'll find an archive of wisdom-filled teachings like this message, as well as others from Pastor Paul Twiss. If you're nearby this weekend and don't have a church where you attend, come worship with us Sundays at 10.30 a.m. and 6 p.m. We're at 200 West Bethany Court in Thousand Oaks. Timeless Truth Today is a teaching ministry of Pastor Paul Twiss, a listener-supported outreach of Bethany Bible Church in Thousand Oaks, California. Listen tomorrow for part seven in our continuing series, Where Can Meaning Be Found? I'm Matt Williams. Thank you for listening to Timeless Truth Today.